We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Just so you know, the passage we're going to be looking at is actually the only passage in the four Gospels that's about Jesus uh, as an older boy. Now, when a Gospel writer includes unique material, material that isn't used by any of the other Gospel writers, uh, you've got to stop and ask why it's there, why they included this particular account. I guess the obvious reason is because it happened. Luke, if you remember from the beginning of the gospel, he's at pains to say that he didn't make any of this stuff up, but that everything he records, everything he writes down, has been carefully verified by eyewitness accounts. So it's here because it happened. And we also know that the gospel writers had far more material at their disposal than they could use. So they were very careful to select accounts that they thought would teach us something important. Now a key factor that shaped Luke's writing, Luke's gospel, was a desire for the readers of his gospel to have a living, growing relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything he records in his gospel isn't just true, is also there to teach us something about how to encounter more and more and more and more of Jesus. And so, before we get into this this morning, before we do anything else, I want to pray. And I want to ask God to strengthen our relationship with him as a result of looking at this passage. I want to ask him uh, for us to encounter more of Jesus as we read these verses. So, I was going to say, if it's okay with you, we'll pray. We're going to pray anyway, uh, but please, I trust it is okay with you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that uh, you don't remain distant in heaven. You speak, you communicate with us. Thank you, your word has power. It has authority. It's well able to change and transform lives radically. I want to pray this morning that as we turn to this passage, you would be our teacher. I want to pray you'd send your Holy Spirit amongst us right now to open our minds to understand, to open our eyes to see things maybe we'd missed before. Uh, I want to pray open ears to actually hear your voice. God, I want to pray whatever you have in your heart for us today, I want to be open to receive from you. Please speak and please change us. Amen. Okay, we're going to pick it up in verse 41, Luke 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. Just to say, the fact that this incident happened when Jesus was 12 years old is probably significant. I don't want you to miss that. Although Jesus would have gone to the Passover with his parents before, it says they attended the festival as usual. This, this was normal for them. This was actually a special year. The 12th year was the final year of preparation for a boy before he entered full participation in the religious life of the synagogue. So the 12th year was like this intensive time of training during which the father would apprentice his son in his calling as an adult man. Of all the years, this would be the year where Jesus' father, Joseph, would take special care to explain the Passover to explain the meaning of it, the purpose of it. Of all the years, this was the time for the son to stick incredibly close to his father. Verse 43. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travellers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. Does that sound familiar? It's kind of how mothers down through history have told off their kids. Your father and I are very upset. It kind of adds a degree of severity. It's like if your father is concerned, well, that's very, very serious. It kind of ramps the tension up several notches. Now, that may or may not be what's going on here, but I think it actually goes a bit deeper than that. I think Mary's saying, of all the years, this is the one year you should be doing the will of your father. That This is the one year you should be sticking close to your father, walking with him and listening to him and learning from him. This is the one year you should be letting your father teach you and prepare you for what's to come. This is the one year you should be with your father. What does Jesus say? Verse 49. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? The question is, how could you treat your father like this? Jesus answered, Mum, it's happening. This, this is supposed to be the year when my father tells me who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm here and where I'm going, and it has begun. Don't you see, I need to be with my heavenly father. Verse 50, but they didn't understand what he meant. And I don't think they're the only ones. It's very hard for us to grasp the momentous nature of what Jesus is saying here because we live in this individualistic Western society. It's hard for us to understand how in different centuries and different cultures, loyalty to parents really is the ultimate duty. It's like Mary comes to Jesus and says he has caused much distress to his family. He hasn't fulfilled his duty to his parents. And really, you need to grasp the seriousness of that accusation if you're going to grasp the significance of what Jesus says in response. He says, I have a relationship with God that transcends, that goes way beyond my relationship with you. Jesus is saying, I have a relationship with God way beyond anything anyone else has ever had, deeper and different. He is my true Father. Now, Judaism, the religion that Jesus grew up in, seldom refers to God as Father. God's referred to as Father just 14 times in the Old Testament. Each time it's done so nationally. God is referred to uh, as father of the whole nation of Israel. But at no point did individuals pray or address God as my father. But get this. In the four Gospels, Jesus speaks of and prays to God as father 60 times. 
It's like Jesus is claiming to have a relationship with God that is beyond, that is different, that is deeper than anyone else has ever had. So on the one hand, Jesus here is making this phenomenal, this enormous claim, a claim to immense privilege and uniqueness, which makes the next verse all the more remarkable. Verse 51, then Jesus returned to Nazareth with his parents and was obedient to them. I mean, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like the highness and the humility the majesty and the meekness. We begin to see traits combined in Jesus, even as a boy, that we would never imagine seeing combined in the same person. So for starters, Luke here is showing us something of the amazing sonship of Jesus. I don't want to flip over to chapter 3 of Luke and pick it up in verse 21 and see the next thing that happens in Luke's account of the life of Jesus. Rest assured, we will go back next time and look at the first 20 verses of chapter 3, lest you're feeling slightly short-changed here. Uh, those verses deal with the ministry of John the Baptist. But what Luke is trying to show us is that this process, which began with the recognition of Jesus' sonship as a 12-year-old boy, culminates 18 years later when God from heaven confirms irrefutably that Jesus is his son. I'm going to pick it up in verse 21. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Or as other versions put it, with you I am well pleased. What happens when he's baptized? Down comes the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit give him? The Holy Spirit coming, notice, leads to this incredibly clear affirmation of Jesus' sonship. You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Now, interesting, perhaps, but what has all of that got to do with you and me? Everything. Absolutely everything. Because you know what Jesus does after this? Does he go around saying that he has this unique father-son relationship with the God of the universe, and you don't? No. He spends the rest of his life, the rest of the Bible, the rest of history, calling men, women, and children into a father-child, intimate family relationship with God through him. His message is that we too can be sons and daughters, that we too can be included in the family of God. It's not just Jesus who says this. I want to listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 8 verse 15. He said, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now look, I can't make it a whole lot more practical than this. The power 
of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who fell on Jesus when he was baptized, the power of the Spirit is available to all of us. The power of the Spirit that descended on Jesus when he was baptized can descend on you as well. And he can work in you the same truth that he ministered to Jesus, that the Spirit comes down and he assures us of our identity as a child of the God of the universe, a loved, honoured, accepted child of God. Now the problem is, we have this sinful nature that cajoles us into building our identity on anything but God. Oh, think about it. Basically, sin is building your identity on anything but God, whether that's family or achievement or a relationship or your work or money, possessions, appearance, even your ministry in the church. It's making any of these things more central, more important to your sense of worth, your significance, how you define yourself, your meaning, your purpose in life, your hope, making anything more central than God. And if you do that, I would suggest to you that your identity is always potentially going to be a meltdown. It's always going to be fragile. It's always unstable because Lots of things can bother it or shake it or knock it off course. Anything can affect it. Circumstances can so easily wreck it. But what you need most, what what you need more than anything else, what heals your identity, what puts it on a completely different footing, is having a deep grasp of being a child of God, being dearly loved by Him and being the source of immense joy and pleasure to him. You need this assurance from God that you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. With you, I am well pleased. And until you get that, there'll always be a degree to which you are fragile. You will always potentially be on the brink of meltdown. That's what Paul's saying. That's what the whole Bible's about. It it just moves on from here. The whole point of the gospel is Jesus saying to us, because I have this relationship with God the Father beyond anything anyone else has ever had before, through me, you can too. I'm the only unique, natural son of God, but through me, you can be adopted sons of God and daughters. And if that happens, you too will become inexplicable to the people around you. It's like you will begin to combine these kind of character personality traits that otherwise wouldn't fit together. There'll be both a highness and a humility, a majesty and a meekness, a power and an ability to suffer. Let me try and break this down a bit more. Let me try and explain this. What what do I mean by a spirit of sonship? What what do I mean by a father-son relationship? Why don't you just take a look at what it meant for Jesus? 
Of course, it's to be slightly careful because obviously Jesus was uniquely the Son of God. And yet Paul does come along and says that we get this kind of mini version of what happened to Jesus at his baptism when the Holy Spirit comes to us. We too can get the spirit of sonship. So let's take a look at what this means. It means at least three things. First of all, honour. Secondly, access. Third, absolute safety. Honour, access, absolute safety. Honour, you are my son. Access, you are dearly loved. Absolute safety, you bring me great joy. Let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, the father says to the son, you are my son. That, that speaks of incredible honour. To grasp this, really, we have to put ourselves back into ancient times because back then the son was the heir, that the son was the one who got absolutely everything that the father had. Now, this doesn't happen so much nowadays, but back then, if you were the local magistrate or bank manager or carpenter or butcher or government official, it passed on to your son. The rank, the status, the wealth, the position of the father all came to the son. Therefore, for for Paul to say, you can be sons of God, is to say that God's value and honouring of you is infinite. And please, just need to say, don't let gender sensitivities rob you of this remarkable truth. Paul is not being gender insensitive here. He's saying something actually that is quite radical at a time when women didn't inherit, they, they never were heirs, they didn't get the status or the wealth or the position or the honour. Paul says that through Jesus Christ, male and female are both the equivalent of sons. Paul explains it like this in Galatians three twenty six. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Serious point. Don't mess with the metaphors, these pictures, these illustrations in the Bible. We need them all. We're all sons, just as we are all a bride and we are all sheep. Each picture adds something to the richness of our understanding of who we are. They, they all bring a facet of revelation to us. If you mess with them, if you twist them, if you reject them, you miss something in the revelation of God to you. So the first point is, to be a son of God is to have incredible honour. What that means is, who cares what people think? Who cares whether you have approval from the people around you? Who cares about criticism and accusation? If you really had a sense of the honour of being in his family, if this was really something that you experienced in the centre, in the core of who you are, you wouldn't be controlled by other people's expectations. You wouldn't be so knocked by people's criticism. You, you wouldn't worry so much about people's approval. 
The fact that you do shows how seriously you need to hear this. God looks you in the eye. He says to you, you are my son. If you believe in Jesus, if you follow him, you also are my son. That's a phenomenal honour. Second thing we see, the father says to the son, you are dearly loved. I think this says something about the access we have to him. That Jesus didn't simply revolutionise things by inviting all of us to address God as our father. He went even further than that. You see, the, the word used for father is a word used by children to address their father. It's not quite as familiar as daddy, but it's a lot less formal than father. Maybe, perhaps, the closest word we get is dad. Incredibly, Jesus kind of taught us to relate to God as our dad. I think some of you are probably going to struggle with this a bit. The reason you're going to struggle is because of your physical dad. Over the years, I've prayed with so many people who have said things like, well, I have a really hard time understanding God as father because my dad was never there for me. He was always too tied up in his job or my dad left, my dad walked out, he divorced my mum, he walked out on all of us or he abused, he abandoned, he beat me. It's like I've got absolutely no respect for him whatsoever. What I say is this, don't judge God by your earthly father. Judge your earthly father by your heavenly father. In the Psalms, God says, I'm a father to the fatherless. So maybe you don't have a dad, or at least it feels as though you don't, but you still have God as your father. And rather than saying, well, my dad was just a waste of time, it it was completely unreliable. It was just this harsh dictator. He was an idiot. So I guess God's like that too. They say, God's wonderful. There's no excuse for my dad to be an idiot. It's like he's ruining the name father. He's ruining the name dad that he shares with God. But in seeing how much my dad failed me, just makes me appreciate how opposite my heavenly father is. In God, I now have everything that my earthly father never was. Won't you let it sink in? God is not impersonal. He's very personal. He's not a mere force. No, he has a name. He's not angry all the time. He's loving. He's not far away. He's close. He's not negligent. He's very much involved in the life of his children. He's our father and he loves us deeply. So it goes without saying that we have access to him anytime, any place, anywhere. He wants us to spend time with him. We have his ear. We have his attention. He is incredibly attentive to us. There's honour here. There is access here. There is also, thirdly, absolute safety. You bring me great joy. With you, I am well pleased. Parent love is very funny. Of all loves, 
I think it's the one that's most unshakable. For example, if you have love for a friend who repeatedly lets you down and says spiteful things about you behind your back, is harsh with you, I guess over time that friendship love erodes. Or if you have romantic love and your partner is mean and abusive, eventually that romantic love goes away. But parent love is different. If your children disobey you and mess you around, it might exasperate you massively, but you get more and more concerned for them because you love them. Regardless of their behavior, there's still this bond. You still love them. You still care deeply. I heard it said that once you have children, for the rest of your life, you'll only ever be as happy as your least happy child. Now, why is it? Why is it that we, as less than perfect parents, can still achieve that kind of counterintuitive, unconditional love for our children? I think it's because we're made in God's image. And if we are like that, what's He like? If you are his child. There's a place in Isaiah 49 verse 15 where God makes this staggering statement. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. He's saying, think of the love of a mother for her newborn child. He says, that is absolutely nothing compared with my love for you. You're absolutely safe, totally secure. Nothing can change the way God feels about you if you're part of his family. Now, if that's true, if that's what being a son of God means, wouldn't you live differently? If you not only believed you had a relationship like that, but also experiencing this kind of relationship, wouldn't it make a radical difference to your day-to-day existence? Imagine the confidence I mean, who cares what people think about me if my Heavenly Father accepts me? Imagine the humility. It's like I can admit to God, to you, to myself what's wrong. I can admit, be open about my thoughts. I can finally be transparent with people. Why? Because I'm safe. There's nothing to be afraid of. What what freedom to be a child of God. Now, how do you get that assurance? Here's how. First of all, get the understanding. And then second, get the experience. Just like Jesus did, get the understanding of sonship, get the experience of sonship. I think there are two things, at least two things, you need if you're to get the understanding of sonship. First of all, I think you need a sense of the excellence of God. The fact that I spent the last 25 minutes 
explaining as best I can, and admittedly, maybe I have some flaws in this, but explaining as best I can how we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there has been, as far as I could ascertain, no outward demonstration of excitement, joy, life, <laughs> let alone wonder or awe. It kind of illustrates the point. Just kind of think, of course we're God's children. It's not news to me, move on. But it doesn't amaze. It doesn't electrify. It it doesn't stun. It doesn't transform us in any way. And you know why? It's because I think we've lost something of the excellence of God. We have such a small pitiful domesticated view of God we we think we're almost doing him a favor being in his family it's like he owes us that couldn't be further from the truth God is so far beyond us he is infinite in his power and his glory and his holiness we have no right before him we we can never get anywhere close to him He chooses us to be his sons. If having a father-son relationship with God is going to transform you, you need to have a way bigger view of God than you currently do. You need a sense of the excellence of God. I think also, you need to see Jesus' sacrifice. Sonship really makes no sense to us without sacrifice. Because you can hear these words, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. You can hear them but just ignore it because you don't think it's really how he could ever view you. It's like you immediately disqualify yourself. You you never think God would ever think that about you. I mean, look at me. Look at what I've done. I'm not worthy. I'm working as hard as I can to try and stay in God's good books but I'm never going to be able to earn his approval, never going to be able to earn his delight or his pleasure. Never going to get to the place of safety, honour and access. But you're not listening. Because when God says to Jesus, you bring me great joy, I am well pleased with you, he was actually quoting a passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 42. And if you were to flick over to Isaiah 42 uh, and see what it is that God is pleased with, is it his record? Now, I'm really pleased that you never miss a meeting. I'm really pleased that you obey all the commandments. Well, it might bring some pleasure, but that's not the reason. He, he's pleased with the work of his servant. What's the work of his servant? Well, here it is. Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he was pierced, speaking of Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that brought us sonship, if you like, was on him. By his wounds, we're healed. God was pleased with Jesus' sacrifice for you. And you're never going to understand your sonship unless you first understand the sacrifice of Jesus for you. If all the time you look to yourself, you'll never ever be good enough. You'll never qualify. You'll never be worthy. You say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I deserve rejection. What does Jesus say? I know. 
I took the rejection. Will you just shut up a moment if Jesus speaks like that? I don't know. But will you just quit trying to do what I've already done for you? Do you understand? Do you understand the excellence of God and the sacrifice of Jesus? If you do, then you know that when you say, Father, please accept me because of what Jesus has done, you know that his response is, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. If you don't understand that, then it's really not going to change anything for you. But if you do understand, then guess what? For most of us, it's still not quite enough because I guess a lot of us in the room understand it but it still doesn't radically transform our lives. We don't have, we don't live with a sense of honour and access and safety. What we need to do is what Jesus did. We also need to experience this sonship. How did Jesus experience it? Now, I, I don't know what Jesus just naturally knew, what he was just naturally aware of as he was growing up. We're not really told, but we are told in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and all the people. And what we see here is that this growth came at least partly as he listened to the teaching from the Scriptures, as he asked questions as he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'll suggest, that's probably how we get to experience more of our sonship too. Read the Bible. Study the Gospels. Ask questions when you don't understand. And be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of sonship. And by Him, we cry, Abba, Father. That the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children.